Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We haven't been in this book for uh, some time, and uh, you'll find it tucked away, of course, after Acts, Romans, and First and Second Corinthians. The small little book of Colossians is there. If you're in Hebrews, turn left. If you're in Romans, turn right. So Colossians, we're going to read for the first, uh, we're going to start in chapter 3, and then we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 1. So Colossians is where I want you to turn. Um, Every friendship that you have, whether it be romantic or platonic, is a process of discovery. Uh, You're always learning about yourself, or you're always learning about the other person, your partner in this friendship, and uh, that's a sign of a healthy and growing and safe friendship. Sometimes those discoveries that you make uh, are surprising. Sometimes they're surprising for good reasons, and sometimes they're surprising for bad reasons. You know, that time that you were talking to your friend, you've known him for five years, and he helped you move, and uh, you served together as ushers, and, and you were talking about music, and he just let loose that his favorite singer of all time, he owns all of her albums, is Dolly Parton. Which is fine, she's an American uh, icon, right? But you're surprised because your friend isn't 70. So... Then there was that other time you were at your friend's house for mom's group and you looked up on the shelf and she had behind glass in her house a collection of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle glasses. And, and you said, oh, ha, those must be your husband's. And you said, uh, no, actually they're mine. I love the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to be April O'Neil. I have seen every one of the cartoons. I love the turtles. That's surprising. It wasn't until you were on that retreat that you learned that your friend sleeps with eight pillows and has this very odd way of going to sleep involving 45 turns on the bed, at least. There's nothing immoral about that. It's just weird. You didn't know that. We all have habits, we all have things we like, we have things we dislike, we have preferences, and sharing and learning them is part of a growing, healthy relationship. I want to talk to you today about something that God likes that's very important to him. It must be important to him because he devotes an awful lot of time in his book to talking about this topic. Because you're intelligent and because it's Thanksgiving week and because it's written next to me in three-foot letters, we're going to talk about gratitude. God loves gratitude. Gratitude matters to God. Now, on the one hand, that's not surprising. It's not surprising at all for me to say that. Every week, gratitude is part of Thanksgiving and every week of worship. And every week when we worship, somebody says thank you to God for something from this pulpit. So we thank God every Sunday. On the other hand, though, think about this with me. What have you done in the last year that was intentionally designed to help you grow in gratitude? For you to become more skilled, more careful, more consistent in thanksgiving. I'm thinking about, uh, with the edition being done soon, about moving my books back into my office in the spring. My kids and I packed them up. And uh, in order to make moving in easier and help me find them if I needed, we labeled all the boxes and we labeled them by topic. So I have commentaries and I have theology books and I have 
books on friendship and books on uh, counseling, and I have books on uh, uh, church leadership and books on preaching, and I have no box at all labeled gratitude, thanksgiving. In fact, if I think about the books that I own, I don't think I even own a single book about how to be better at thanksgiving. Or uh, think about the conferences. I've been to a lot of conferences. I like going to conferences. They're very helpful. We have conferences on evangelism and conferences on preaching and conferences on marriage and conferences on anger and on parenting. And uh, I have never seen or been to a conference devoted solely to the topic of thanksgiving. And yet gratitude matters to God. Um, let me show you a little bit, a, a taste of this. Our, our Bibles are open to the book of the Bible in which Paul talks about gratitude the most. And I want you to think about Colossians 3, 15, 16, and 17, where Paul mentions gratitude three times in a row. Colossians three fifteen. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Now this is... Uh, The emphasis here is on congregational unity, peace not between uh, in our hearts over the troubles of the world, but peace in the body amongst us that that Christ brings. And look what he says right in this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, he says, and be thankful. A united congregation is a congregation filled with grateful people. Uh, thankful, a, a, a unified church is made up of people who give thanks often and verbally and consistently and joyfully. Makes you think, it should make you think about how you are contributing to the unity of the congregation. Are you contributing to it by your gratitude? Then in verse 16, he continues talking about gratitude, but here he speaks about specifically in the, the context of worship. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Paul is concerned about the message of Christ being in the church, and it is uh, we teach and admonish one another, and one of the ways we do that is by singing. Singing is a form of discipleship. So when we gather together and we sing, we disciple one another through our singing, which is why... When we worship on Sunday mornings, a high priority for us is so that we are together. We want to hear the worship team. They lead us in that sense so that we're in the same pitch and in the same speed. But the most important sound in our worship is our, the voice of the congregation because we disciple one another as we sing. But it's to be accompanied always by gratitude in your hearts. Then he moves on even again to talk about gratitude. Uh, And whatever you do, verse 17, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thanks is to accompany, gratitude is to accompany everything. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed. Uh, Some of you love to put salt on your food. You put a lot of salt on your food. The food comes... It's set in front of you or you set it in front of yourself. And before you even taste it, you reach for the salt shaker and sprinkle it on. Some of you love salt. You salt everything. You put salt on your pretzels and your beef jerky. You salt everything, right? Paul says here, put the, uh, 
as you think about salt, so think about gratitude. Sprinkle everything you do with thanksgiving. Now, if that's not you, if these verses don't perfectly epitomize your life, don't be discouraged this morning. You should be encouraged because the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul knew that you would need the help, so they wrote this book to help you grow in your gratitude. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote it, as I I said. Uh, There is no one in the New Testament who writes as much about thanksgiving as the Apostle Paul does. He both expresses it and encourages it more than anybody else in the New Testament. In fact, we compare Paul with other ancient writers. No one in the ancient world wrote about thanksgiving as much as Paul did. This may be an exaggeration to say, but based on his writings, there was no one Uh, who was more grateful alive during Paul's life other than the Apostle Paul. He was the most grateful man of his generation. That's not true of me, but I aspire to it. Think about what it would be like for people to recognize you as the most grateful person in your family, the most grateful seventh grader at Manor Middle School, the most grateful salesman at your company. I have a ways to go in this. You should hear my father-in-law after he eats dinner at our house. My wife will prepare something for, for dinner, and we will eat together. And, and within uh, the, the uh, 45 minutes, an hour, uh, somewhere, within that period of time around which we are eat, will eat, my father-in-law will say thank you at least five times. Not in a, in a um, plastic, um, a put-on sort of way, but deeply, sincerely from the heart. Thank you, honey. This is so good. Oh, thank you so much. And, and thanks number four and five is usually accompanied by a hug and a kiss. I have a ways to go in, gro- in my uh, gratitude. But gratitude matters to God. This morning what I want to do is I want to serve you by taking you to, through uh, Paul's, one of Paul's prayers at the beginning of Colossians 1. So uh, beginning of Colossians. So turn over to Colossians chapter 1 if you would. And I want to walk with you through this prayer of the Apostle Paul. Thanksgiving is the capstone. Thanksgiving is the end and the highlight of this prayer. And from this prayer I want to show you um, two observations about gratitude. I want to serve you well in this this morning because I recognize that 2020 has been a difficult year for Thanksgiving. You have reasons to give thanks. If you think of them, you you can make a list. We're sitting in this beautiful room for which we give thanks to God. But it's a lot easier this year to weep than to give thanks. You can much more easily make a list of things that you have lost or things that you miss things that you won't get back again, that you grieve. It's it's easier to be a complaining person, a sorrowful person, than to be a grateful person. So we need help. And for that, we turn to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 9. Let's start reading. Colossians 1, 9. For this reason, Paul says, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives 
so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks. Your translation might put the joy with the endurance and patience rather than the thanks. That word joy in the original is right in the middle of those two things. So is Paul commending joyful endurance or is he commending joyful thanks? Which do you think would matter to the Apostle Paul? Yes is the answer to that question, right? Both of them. So uh, my translation says, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Two observations that I want to share with you about gratitude. Number one, gratitude is part of a life that pleases God. Gratitude is part of a life that pleases God. This is a prayer report. Verse 9 begins, Paul, by telling them, uh, the Colossians, about his praying for them. It's a dense report, this paragraph, this prayer report. Uh, the Thanksgiving is at the end. Paul didn't found the church at Colossae. He's writing to this church that he had never visited, but he'd heard about them and knew about some of the struggles and some of the joys that they had. So he wrote this book to rejoice with them. And he begins by telling them, I have been praying for you. Verse 3, actually, his prayer report actually begins in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Then verse 9, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually pray for you. We are fervent, steadfast. We persevere in praying faithfully for you. Just as an aside, here's some help and some encouragement in Colossians chapter 1 for you as you think about other congregations. Congregations in Millersville or Manor Township in Lancaster County. Uh, Other congregations and how you can be praying for them. Surely you have relatives or you have a friend, you have a neighbor who goes to a different church. Do you pray? Can you pray for that congregation? I would encourage you to do so. And here's the way to do it. This is a way that you could pray for your, the church that your kids go to. Or uh, I have the fervent hope and expectation that when our outreach partners pray for us, that they would pray something like what's in Colossians chapter 1. Now, uh, the, the prayer that, that uh, Paul prays here, we can, we can divide this. We can follow this in a chain of how he prays. It's not difficult to follow. We start with his main request. Paul's main request is, we ask God, verse 9, to fill you with the knowledge of his will. I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, by using that word filling, Paul is beginning here this theme that is in the book of Colossians. He writes about filling a lot, not that thing you make with bread, but, but being full, being filled And uh, he has a lot of interest in this. Look with me at some of the verses where he talks about filling in Colossians. It's a repeated word. Uh, uh, Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now Paul is not saying here that what Christ did for us is in any way insufficient, that, that it needs to be that, that there's lack in what Christ suffered. What he's saying is 
that in order for the message of the gospel to get to the world, there's going to be suffering involved. And my life, I have, I have filled up my fair share of suffering to, to take the gospel elsewhere. I've been filled with suffering. Verse 25, I have become the servant of this church, of this message, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. I'm bringing you the full message of the gospel. Then two verse two, chapter 2, verse 2. Paul's goal is that they, the people who listen to him, may be encouraged in heart and unified in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. I want you to understand what I'm saying fully and completely. Verse 9, in Christ, of chapter 2, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. There's fullness in this passage. Uh, uh, Christ is full, you can be full. Then uh, chapter 4, verse 12 here, there's two more references to fullness. 4.12, Epiphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I want you to have full assurance that their fullness in Christ and, and uh, you can be full in him. Then verse 17, tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. See to it that your ministry is full, that you're, it's filled. I think what's happening is that there were false teachers in the city of Colossae who were nibbling on the edges of the church and they were saying to the Christians there, you know, um, what, what you heard, that message you heard is, is okay, it's good, it's a, it's a good first step, but uh, we're here to give you the full message, the whole message. And Paul says, oh no, 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 no. In Christ, you have received fullness. I think that's, that's what he's after. And he prays in Colossians 1 that they would have a full understanding. Full understanding of the will of God. Now, usually when we think about the will of God, we talk about it in terms of decision making. Should I buy this house? Should I marry this person? Should I take this job? Should I buy this car? What is God's will for me in this situation? That's usually the way we think about the will of God. That is not the way, though, that Paul writes most often about the will of God. Paul's comprehensive. He talks about God's will in terms of his instructions for us in living life in this world. God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is the sovereign over it, and he has... uh, Uh, will. He has instructions. He has inclinations for how we're to live in this world and and how uh, uh, we're to follow him, what he wants us to do in everything. And that's what Paul's praying. Colossian church, I'm praying that you will be filled with a deep understanding of what God would have you to do. And it's an understanding that comes from the Holy Spirit. He says, that you'll understand his will, the knowledge of his will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Um, Here is what we followers of Jesus need, a full understanding of the will of God gifted to us by the Holy Spirit. 
While we're talking about God's will and it's Thanksgiving, I might as well just show you this verse, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.18, this is the verse that you print out on all your Thanksgiving cards that you uh, uh, put on uh, your placemats, right? Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, his instructions for a living life in this world. We are about to, as a congregation, again, nominate men to serve as elders. We do it about this time every year. Here is another benchmark for you to think about as you think about men that you might serve, nominate to serve as elders. Based on what Colossians 1.9 says, what sort of men do we need to serve as elders? We need men who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have understanding into the will of God so that they can lead and direct the congregation in obeying him. That's what we need. That's the type of leaders that we need. Wise men and wise women grow in this, and and wise congregations appoint elders who master this. So um, that's uh, uh, Paul's main request. Now let's move on. We'll talk about the goal of Paul's prayer. The goal, goal of Paul's prayer is in verse 10. It says, he says, I'm praying this way, So that, verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Uh, This worthy language, Paul uses worthy language a lot. Um, uh, he, he wants us to live lives worthy of the calling we've received or worthy of the Lord. Uh, this is not just Paul's language. Actually, in ancient temples, uh, priests or those who serve at the temple would talk about living lives that are worthy of the God they serve. I don't know if there's ever an example of this, but here's an illustration of how that might work. Can you imagine a priest who served in the, God, in the temple of the god Poseidon? Poseidon is the god of the seas. Can you imagine a priest who worships Poseidon who is afraid to go swimming? Right? Afraid to get in the water. And you want to say, don't you worship the god who rules this place? Yeah, but I'm going in there. You are not worthy of the God you worship. And Paul says, live a life that is worthy of the Lord and that pleases him in every way. Some of you find this hard to imagine that Paul would write this way. This this concept of, is it possible for me to please God? Some of you, you have very tender consciences and, and you don't think about your life in terms of pleasing God. You, what comes to your mind so easily is all the ways that you fail him. Satan tempts you to despair and reminds you of the guilt within. And you can't even imagine that at the end of the day, God would say to you, I am pleased with you. I'm so pleased with you. And yet Paul writes this. To real and regular Christians, this possibility that you would please, be pleasing to God in every way. Uh, yesterday, we spent some time outside, the kids and I, raking leaves. They've gotten better at raking leaves over the years. When they started raking leaves, they were terrible. But they've gotten better at it, developing more skills and more forethought and more planning and, and more efficiency in the work that they do. And uh, they are increasingly pleasing to me and how they rake leaves. It's an increasing, increasing pleasure for me to work with them on projects like this as I see their skills and energy and efficiency growing. They please me. Is it possible 
that God himself would look at your life and see how you pass out pipe cleaners on Wednesday nights in Awana or how you sing in nursing homes or how you pray with your children and teach them how to pray and, and that God would look at you and say, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased with, with, with how you are following me. Paul lays this out as a possibility. I want you to know God's will. It's a spirit-given uh, knowledge. And knowing it, you will live a life that is worthy of the Lord and that is pleasing to me. Now what he does then, starting in verse 10... Paul talks about what this sort of life is that pleases God. How do we recognize it? What does it look like, this life that pleases God? And there's four elements that he mentions in four phrases, and we'll go through them uh, uh, this morning. First, it's a life of good works, a life marked by good works. Look what verse 10 says, begins again, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And then it says, bearing fruit in every good work. Good works are the fruit of believing the good news. Believe the good news, and the result is good works. The good news leads to good works. That's an important distinction, one we must keep in mind, because most people, their generic understanding of what it means to please God is that they do good works in order to uh, be eligible for God's good news. That's not what the Bible teaches. The the Bible teaches that believing good news comes first and the good works follow. The good works are the fruit of believing the good news. And, And that makes sense just by virtue of the logic of the good news that we believe. We believe the good news about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it starts, though, doesn't it? The the good news starts with bad news. You are alienated from God, your creator. You are not walking, you are not living a life that is pleasing to him. You are not living a life that is worthy of him. You, in fact, are guilty before God in rebellion against him. And the chief evidence of that, of course, is your bad works. Not good works, but bad works. And everyone here has collected a treasure trove of bad works works. God is determined to fix the world that we have broken. We have introduced into this world toxicity and brokenness and evil and darkness because of our bad works. And God is going to repair the damage that we have done through his holy justice. You have within you this instinct that says that criminals ought to be punished. Those who break the law ought to meet uh, 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 justice. It ought to happen. What's the justice that God brings to those who are guilty of bad works? Death. Jesus, though, died for us on the cross, was buried and rose again. He died for our sins in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve, and he ascended into heaven. He's there, and he uh, uh, will forgive and give life to all who will turn and believe him and trust him as savior and rely upon him. And now being reconciled to God through Jesus, we have the freedom to do good works, 
That's the evidence and the fruit that we have believed the good news, the good works. Just like fruit, sometimes there are barren seasons in the good works that we followers of Jesus produce. Sometimes it takes time to see the good works, but they are the inevitable result of believing the good news, good works. Now, let's move on. He Secondly, he says, uh, a sign of life that pleases God, growth, growth. He says in verse 10, growing in the knowledge of God. Now, why? He's already talked about our knowledge of God. Why does he talk about growing in the knowledge of God? I think he's, he's reflecting in this reality of, of the Christian life. Intimacy with God increases as you obey him. As you obey God, your intimacy with him increases. Some of you... Some of you are, are concerned and heartbroken about the stagnancy of your Christian life, of your discipleship and following Jesus. Can I suggest to you that one of the causes of stagnancy in a person's life in following Jesus is that they are stagnant because you're not doing what you already know to be true. You're not living out the, in obedience to the truths that you already have. And that lack of movement is introducing stagnancy in your growth in the knowledge of God. I'm told this, I'm not certain about this, but I'm told that sharks, in order to breathe, must continue swimming. They have to keep moving in order to breathe. If a shark ever stops, then it can't breathe and it will suffocate. So followers of Jesus, their intimacy with God grows as they keep moving in obedience toward him. So growth. Now third, grit, grit. I use the word grit because it starts with the letter G and because it's my uh, uh, effort to summarize what Paul says in verse 11 when he talks about having great endurance and patience. Great endurance and patience. Is there anyone in the room who needs more endurance and patience in following the Lord Jesus? Anybody need a little jolt of perseverance here? It takes endurance to follow Jesus faithfully in this world. Following Jesus faithfully in this world is not so much like uh, riding a water slide, coasting down to the bottom. It's more like climbing a mountain, hiking up to the top. So we need endurance. We need patience. And the good news is, Paul says here, that God provides us with the strength that we need to endure and to have this sort of patience. Verse 11 begins, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may endure. I appreciate this passage because notice that the standard of our endurance or the standard of the strength that God gives is his glory not our need. You can picture it like this. Perhaps you come to God and God says to you, how much do you need this week? And you say, God, I need 50 bucks. And God says, okay, here's 10,000. And you say, no, no, I don't need 10,000. I just need 50. And God says to you, yes, but the standard of my generosity is not your need. It's my glory. And this is just a tiny fraction what I'm giving you. 
Uh, or perhaps you can think about it like this. Is the, the, the standard is God's glory, the might of his glory. In the Bible, the word glory is the manifestation of God's nature, the manifestation of his holiness. You can think about it like this. We look up in the sky and we see the sun. We see it and we receive on the planet the energy that the sun produces, the, the light energy that comes. And we human beings are just beginning to develop skill in capturing that energy and turning it into electricity. We're just on the, uh, on the edge of our efforts to do solar power. But you know how much energy the sun produces and how much we're not gathering yet. Presumably, as technology develops, we'll get better and better and better at collecting energy from the sun. But it is almost, as it were, a limitless supply that is ours. We just need to learn how to take advantage of it. There is God's glory that he, uh, according to his glory, he strengthens us so that we can endure. There are scientists that train mice to do things. Imagine a scientist who trained a mouse to move objects and he sets in front of the mouse a cinder block and says, friend mouse, move the cinder block and friend mouse looks stupefied. The scientist says, worry not, friend mouse, because I have provided for you friend elephant, and he will come and help you. Can an elephant move a cinder block? Absolutely. An elephant can throw a cinder block. Here is the strength that God provides. Now, it's important to think about this, the standard, God's glorious might, because gratitude at some points in time can be a fragile thing. There is a fragility to gratitude. There's a fragility to good works too, but there's a, fragil- a fragility to gratitude. Some people slip into thinking, the error of thinking that our gratitude to God and our good works are payback to God. God's been good to me, so I'm going to be good to him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be grateful. I'm going to do these good works because I'm paying God back for all the good things he has done for me. Now, to Paul's readers, they might have been tempted more to think this way even than we are because they lived in what's been called a gift economy. That was the ancient uh, system and how it worked, a gift economy. We live in what I could call a cash economy where our transactions, my transactions with businesses take place and are over. So I go to the grocery store, I give him cash money, he gives me bread and milk, and I walk out, and neither of us owe anything else to each other. He got my money, I got his milk, and we're done. The transaction is over. In a gift economy, though, the gifts would be given, and there always would be obligations involved, like being part of the mob. I don't have much experience with the mob, despite the fact that my last name is Divini, but if, if, if the mob boss gives you something does something for you, it's not an act of kindness from the bottom of his heart. You're going to owe him something. You're you're his debtor. You, You owe him. You have an obligation. It's not generosity. It's obligation creation. And some people think that, that that's the way gratitude or good works are, that, that we're going to try to pay God back. But if you realize the standard by which God gives, the extent of his generosity, you'll recognize you have no hope of paying God back. It's, it's actually ridiculous to think about. 
John Zoll has a friend, he writes about this, he has a friend who uh, owns a high-end department store, and one day this friend said to John, listen, John, you're my great friend, and I care about you, and I have a gift for you, and he handed him a black gift card. He said, this is a card for my store, you can go use it to buy anything you want, and I, I'm giving it to you. And John Zoll received it, and, and he saw the amount of money that was on this gift card, and it was an obscene amount of money. And he kind of felt awkward and felt a little silly about this, receiving this generosity. So he, he hatched a plan that he would, would, would receive some generosity, but also try to pay this guy back just a little bit. So his plan was he was going to go to the store and buy enough stuff to exhaust the gift card plus a little bit more so that he could at least contribute a little bit to this generous gift. So he went to the store and his friend met him there for this day of shopping. And, and John Zoll got some, uh, a suit or two and he got some shoes and a belt and a shirt. And, and all the, they're walking around the store and every time John is checking out the, the price tag of everything, he's doing the math in his head. Now, when have I reached the point where I've, I've exhausted the gift card? And they reached that point and then they bought a little bit more so that when he got up to the cash register, he could, he could pay just a little bit you know, to, to thank his friend. They got up to the cash register and the cashier rang everything out and told them the amount and it was only half of the gift card. Not only did his friend give him this generous gift card, they also gave him a 50% discount. (laughs) So he decided this is his plan, what he's going to do. He and his wife went back the next week and they bought everything they could find. We're going we're gonna to use this, the rest of this gift card so, and, and some more so I can at least contribute a little bit here, pay my friend back. They bought dresses and perfume and, and jewelry and shoes and, and, and ties and hats and they put it on the counter and rang out and John Zoll pulled out his wallet. How much do I owe you? And the cashier said, nothing. What do you mean nothing? Cashier said, you, you don't understand what sort of gift card this is. No matter how much you get and how much you put on this counter, the total you owe will always be zero. It's that much of a gift. It's that generous a gift. And all you can do is receive it. God's grace is so magnificent. It's so generous. It's so abundant. The standard of his generosity is his own nature. It's not even your need. It's who he is himself. And and you can't pay him back. All you can do is receive it and give thanks thanks to God for it, to celebrate it. Now, that leads to number four here, which is on the list, which is gratitude. Look, gratitude, verse 12, giving joyful thanks to the Father. Joyful thanks to the Father. Now, Paul doesn't draw this connection explicitly, but I, I think it's, it's not hard to see. Let's take gratitude and go back all through a whole paragraph and see how it unfolds. We give thanks to God for the fullness that is in Christ, that through Christ is in us. We give thanks to God that he has revealed his will to us and given us his spirit so we can understand it and so that we can obey it. We give thanks to God that, that, we, that he continues to reveal who he is to us so that we can grow in our knowledge of him. We give thanks to God for his strength that enables us to endure and, and be patient in this world. We give thanks to God for his multitude of blessings. Uh, Do you struggle to find reasons to give thanks? Maybe you will this year. 
right? On Thursday, your family or whoever gathers with you, you know, go around and talk about why you're thankful. Will you struggle this year? Maybe you're thinking too small. Uh, that's why, why Paul continues in this passage. Let, let's talk about the second observation about gratitude. We won't spend much time here. But secondly, gratitude, not only is it part of a life that pleases God, but it is the proper response to God's grace. Paul focuses our gratitude here. And what's interesting is he focuses it on the future and he focuses it on the past and he doesn't write anything about the present. It's usually where we think about our Thanksgiving is the present. That's not in Paul's mind at all, which is helpful in 2020 because maybe your present is not too pleasant, right? But the future, he says, give thanks to God, the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Paul must have been thinking about the Israelites in the Old Testament and their inheritance Right, God rescues them from slavery in Egypt. They go into the, the they wander a, around for a bit, and then they go into the promised land eventually. And while they're wandering in the wilderness, if they're wise, there were not very many wise ones, but if the wise ones were thinking about God's promise and the inheritance that was there, I've got a share in that land that God has promised. There's property there that's mine, and God has promised, and that's where I'm going, and I'm thankful to God for it. Do you think about eternity that way? You have a share in God's eternal kingdom if you are in Jesus Christ. It's yours. Give thanks to the Father. He also talks about the past here, though, in verses 13 and following. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Think about what God has done for us in the past. Let us give thanks. The abundance of his generosity, our gratitude can never be payback to him. It's just too much. The uh, South African newspaper, the Cape Times, about 15 years ago, had an article about an unusual burglary that took place. There was a man who came home unexpectedly, he wasn't supposed to be home at the time, and found eight burglars in his house. If they'd known it was just him, they probably wouldn't have run, but somebody came home, so all eight of them split, except for one guy who unfortunately, as he was running to climb over the back wall, fell into the swimming pool. And he could not swim. So he thrashed around in the water and called for help. And the homeowner stood there for a minute and then jumped in the water and rescued the burglar and brought him out uh, onto the patio. And they both stood there dripping wet and heaving a little bit. And after the burglar had recovered, he pulled out a knife and said, I'm here to rob you. And called his burglar friend, started to call him back. Hey, guys, come back. I got him captured. It's only him. And, and I got a knife on him. And you know what the homeowner did? He pushed him into the pool. <laughs> it's a good strategy. Pushed him right in the pool. And you know what happened? In the pool, help me, help me, rescue me, rescue me. Res-. And you know what the homeowner did? Jumped in the water, pulled him out again. I think about that story and I think about my own experience with gratitude and how often I forget what God has done for me, how grand his generosity has been, how persistent his mercy has been in my life. I know this is a difficult season for gratitude, brothers and sisters. You're not going to have the Thanksgiving or the holiday season that you were hoping perhaps 
Some of your plans have been ruined and the year has been hard. But I would like to encourage you on the basis of what Paul says here to look broadly and look deeply and you will find abundant reasons to give thanks. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we come knowing and confessing to you how desperately we need your help. Lord, gratitude is a beautiful thing. And and we think about the people in our lives who are marked by their gratitude and they are encouraging to us and helpful and joyful people. And uh, we aspire to that sort of gratitude in our own lives. Father, we confess that we find it easier to be bitter. We find it easier to complain and to criticize and to belittle and to grumble. We find all of those things easier. And and this year, Lord, you have led us in your providence through a difficult year. And we find it even easier this year to complain and more challenging to give thanks. So help us. Lord, we want you to change us. We, we don't just want to feel guilty about our ingratitude. We, we want you to, by your spirit, change us so that we would be grateful men and women following you with joyful thanks. Help us to look broadly and deeply at your great grace. Oh, how we need your help. We ask for it. You who did not spare your son but freely gave him all Uh, gave him up for us, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? So on the basis of the gift of your son, we ask that you would make us grateful. We We plead with you and we pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, amen.